Statistics tell us that only about 10% of the world's population is left-handed. Which is kind of interesting because when you think about all that the world has to offer and the things that we use, little tools here and there, it seems that almost everything is made for the right hand. Think about paper cutters, cameras. I know we use our phones now, but if you have a traditional camera, it's made for the right hand. Bicycle bells, which I put on my kids' bikes, and they go on which side? On the right hand. Scissors, although they do make left-handed scissors, scissors are traditionally used for the right hand. Anytime we crank something, it seems to be cranked by the right hand, from pencil sharpeners to can openers to even the children's desks that they have at the school are, are built to rest and write with the right hand. Our language tends to favor right-handers. When you think of the phrase, you have two left feet, it's not exactly a praise, is it? When you take an oath, which hand do we raise? When we say the Pledge of Allegiance, which hand goes over your heart? Even the Bible tends to favor right-handers. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when Jesus separated the sheep from the goats in, in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, the sheep, which were the good guys, go on the right side, and the goats go on the left hand. And throughout the whole Bible, to be at the right hand is to be at the place of honor. Even Jesus himself sits on which side of the Father? The right hand. And some of you here today might be part of that 10% and, and might be left-handed. You might be a, a little bit concerned as to what you might do, but if you're a little bit concerned about being left-handed, what are you going to do but appeal to your rights? You see, the world that we live in seems to favor the right-handed. And the reality that I want to propose is that there's a story in Judges 3 that has become one of my favorite stories about the power of a left-handed man. But it's not his particular power, it's his left-handedness, though, that makes him unique to accomplish a particular task that God has for him. And God uses him because of his uniqueness. And what is his uniqueness? His left-handedness. Won't you turn with me to Judges 3, 12 through 30, if you have your Bibles, and we'll be placing this up on the screen to follow as long as well, but I want to just take a look at the passage as a whole, and then we'll go back and break it down. But let's get a flavor for what this story of Ehud, the left-handed swordsman, is all about. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. 
Then Ehud went to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan and led, that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, this story had become one of my favorite stories when I was about 10 years old. It was kind of interesting how I even came across this story. I was a big baseball player growing up in, in, in Little League and played high school and, and some college baseball at Biola University. But when I was 10 years old, I attended a baseball camp at Claremont that was put on by Frank Pastore, who was a, a baseball pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds, who ended up hurting himself and became a very strong Christian apologist on the KKLA station, a radio station. He had a, a big apologetic show that he did in the afternoons that I would listen to every day on my way home. And within the last few years, he had gotten in a motorcycle accident and passed away. But at his baseball camp, they would pause at, at lunchtime and, and tell Bible stories to, to kids ranging from about 6 years old to 12 years old. And when I was at this baseball camp, I heard this story for the very first time. And it just resonated with me because it demonstrated that God can use our uniqueness for his glory. Ehud is one example of how that happens. But there are a lot of details that come out in this story that, that give me some, some food for thought, and I'd like to share those with you today. First of all, this book of Judges, we have to go back and take a look at the book of Judges and, and understand it from just the perspective of what's going on. It begins where the book of Joshua, right before it, ends. In both books, Joshua and Judges record the death of Joshua. Very significant. But Israel was serving the Lord with Joshua when he died. And they must have experienced some incredible acts of God if you look and study the book of Joshua first. And I want to propose this list of things that the Israelites would have witnessed being led by Joshua. Crossing over the Jordan in Joshua 3 and 4 would have been an incredible task. Similar to, to experiencing the crossing of the Red Sea, although I don't think it would have been as big of a scale, uh, but certainly it was quite a miracle to see these waters of the Jordan parted so the people could go through. Then they experienced the fall of Jericho in Joshua 5, which is also an incredible task because Jericho was a, was a huge power, and yet the walls fall down. And there are still evidences in Jericho. I personally went there with a trip to Israel that I took when I was with Biola and, and studied in Israel and in Turkey and Greece and Rome and followed Paul's missionary journeys as well as Old Testament and, and New Testament Israel lands. And there's still evidence in Jericho today of the fallen walls. The rubble is there as evidence. The fall of Ai in Joshua 8 would have been no small task. I mean, these are major empires and powers that are, are falling, really, at the hand and direction of God, which the people are experiencing and witnessing. In Joshua 9 and 10, we see a peace treaty with Gibeon. That would have not come easy. There was a, a victory of war over the Amorites. And we're familiar, I'm sure, with Joshua 10 and the story of the prayer. And, and, and God hears a man pray, and he, he causes the sun to set still for 
a full day. Pretty powerful. I don't know how I would experience if I prayed, God, give me an extra 24 hours and the sun didn't go down. That would be a pretty amazing task. Then Israel goes on a tear for the rest of the book of Joshua, conquering kingdom after kingdom after kingdom because God is on their side and they are witnessing some incredible acts. Not of their own will. They couldn't do this before. But incredible acts at the hand of God. But then when we open up the book of Joshua, or Judges rather, we see that something changed. Because at the death of Joshua, we look at Judges 2, 10 through 19, and we hear this. And this personally is very troubling to me. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I want to pause right there. And we might scratch our heads and say, how does that happen? How does the generation after all of these incredible events in the leadership of Joshua, how does the generation after that not follow God or know what God had done for Israel? That's troubling. Did the people who follow not pass it down to their kids? I mean, for me personally, one of the greatest blessings that I have as a father has, has been able to personally baptize two out of three of my kids. And I believe that when Colby is a little bit older and he knows a little bit more, he's going to make a commitment to serve Christ fully and he's going to be asking, Dad, will, will you baptize me like you baptized my older brother and my older sister? But I think it's a responsibility of, of parents to pass on to, to their children it's also the responsibility of grandparents to pass on to their children. And if for some reason the children don't listen, we still pass it down to the grandchildren. And I, for, I know for me in my life personally that during a time when my parents were not actively going to church, when I was a young child, I was going with my grandparents. My grandparents were very instrumental in, in, in leading me to Christ and and it's kind of interesting because when I made a commitment to fully serve Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at 10 years old, well, then my father started to investigate. What is my son getting into? And it was that process that led him to eventually fully commit to serving Christ. And so you just never know, but we have a responsibility to, to pass the truth on from one generation to generation, and it just baffles me that another generation would grow up after experiencing all these incredible acts of God. And that generation neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It's troubling. But let's continue. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asheroths. These are false gods of, of that time period. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plunged them. I bet that's not a great experience, to rebel against God and be placed in the hands of those who were going against you. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with them and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But here's verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices 
in their stubborn ways? And how must that break the heart of those who follow God under the leadership of Joshua? But to know that their ancestors, a generation later, about a hundred years later, would be serving false gods, would be rebelling and doing things deliberately against the God who had done all these miraculous works for Israel. Heartbreaking. And we can experience this a little bit, I believe, when, when we as Christian parents or Christian brothers or Christian grandparents look at the generations that are coming up and we see their rebellion. We see them going astray. Now, they might not be worshiping Baal and Asheroth, but they may be worshiping other things that are the idols of America in 2018. And it's just as troubling to, to see them go down that road. But this is the backdrop of Judges 3. That's why I wanted to go back and take a look just real quickly at what happens in the book of Joshua. Because that impacted very radically one particular generation. And I don't believe we really can understand or appreciate this story fully unless we understand that contextual backdrop. But now that we see that a generation that followed and loved God die out. The next generation doing that which was right in their own eyes, creating their own form of morality, worshiping their own gods that they wanted to follow and rebel against the true God. This is the backdrop of Judges 3 because when Judges 3.12, our story today begins, it starts by saying, again. Now that doesn't mean it happened one time. You read the book of Judges, you see that this is a process of rebellion and rescue, rebellion and rescue, rebellion and rescue. And we come to Judges 3.12 and that word again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon of Moab for 18 years. And I want to take a look at, at the highlighted words up there on the screen for this particular passage. I pointed out that again the Israelites did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a process. It seems to be continually happening. But this Eglon king of Moab, I don't believe anybody has power unless God gives it to them. That's the good guys, the bad guys, and the ugly guys. But you don't get power unless God allows it. But God seems to be allowing this because the people are going astray and he's allowing them to, to, to suffer for that. For when they, they respond to God and, and they, they confess, then God brings them a judge to rescue them. But Eglon, king of Moab, his powers are limited to that which God allows anyways. And I believe that's true for anybody in leadership, even in today's society. But Eglon does something where he takes the Ammonites and the Amalekites, these power sources around Moab, and he unites with them, making his powers even stronger. So he's got an alliance going on. He's got this, this alliance with other powerhouse kingdoms, and all they're doing, it just seems to be, is hurting Israel more and more. The Israelites were subject to Eglon's king Moab for 18 years. 18 years. Now I consider how long 18 years is. That's a long time to be under bondage. But yet in my experience, I continue to see people struggle in bondage. A lot of different addictions and bondage and struggle that people struggle with sometimes a whole lifetime. And, and it breaks my heart to see that. Certainly, it would have been horrible, a horrible 18 years that Israel experienced the, this persecution under Eglon, king of Moab. But maybe some of you have struggled with oppression for a lot longer than that. We see that God is the great deliverer. He does answer when we cry mercy. But in some cases, I see the book of Judges as a mercy game. And you remember those mercy games, right? 
And you grab somebody's hand and you twist it around. And how far can I pull your finger back until you cry what? Mercy. And then I'll let it go. And it does seem to be that that might be kind of the case here. Israel is doing their own thing. They think they're, they're great. They can live however they want to. And then the oppression comes. The mercy game begins. But this mercy game had gone on for, I don't think I could do that for 18 years. That would hurt. But eventually, what do they do? Well, here's the good news, verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he had strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. You see, the left-handedness of Ehud allowed him to get into the inner barracks of where the king was. The left-handedness of Ehud was, was special because if you're a, 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 a traditional swordsman, you would wear your, if you come into battle, you, you would wear your sword on your left side and take your right hand and cross your body and draw it. But if you're coming in peace, you would wear it on the right side because nobody's going to draw out a sword this way. Of course, if you're left-handed coming in war, you're wearing this on your right side to cross over your body. But they would have checked his, his left side and not seen anything and said, okay, you, you can go in and you can pay tribute. And this, uh, this tribute that he seems to be giving seems to be something that might have been a regular occurrence as well. Maybe an annual tribute or something that, that was, maybe it was special annually, but we don't know exactly what the tribute was, but it does seem to be some kind of common thing that he goes to, to pay to Eglon, king of Moab, maybe in the way that we kind of do our taxes. But Ehud made this double-edged sword about a cubit long, and I want you to think about what a cubit is. A cubit is the length from your middle finger to your elbow, which would be, what, about 18 inches or so. So that's a pretty long sword going down to maybe about your knee. It was something that would have been perhaps seen or, or even concealed. But based on where it was located, and he being left-handed, he was allowed to pass with that, with, with that large weapon attached to his right thigh under his clothing. So he presents the tribute to King Eglon, this very fat man. I think it's interesting what the word Eglon means. In Hebrew, it means calf. I don't think it's a surprise then that the Bible would describe him as a very fat man. I think that's what it actually was. I think he was a, a, a fat man. But some commentaries suggest, is he a fatted calf getting ready for slaughter? Could very well be, because throughout the Old Testament, there's references to fatted animals that are perfect for the slaughter. And one wonders if the description fits. I certainly think the description fits a true life story rather than something that was just made up to tell a fairy tale or to make a point. The descriptions of who Eglon is and, 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 and the details that are given in this story seem to make a strong case that this is a historical fact and after Ehud had presented this tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal. Now, here's where I want to pause for a moment. Because I think that this is one of the, verse 19 is one of the often overlooked aspects of this message. Understand what he's doing. He pays the king, Eglon, the tribute, and he and his people are done. We go. We're out of here. We could take our pins and put a line right between 18 and 19, and that's the end of the story. 
That could have very well ended. This is the end of the sermon, end of the story, done. Israel's still oppressed. They just paid the king. They went their separate ways and went back home and continued oppression for how many more years? Who knows? That's not what happens. Ehud is headed back home and he passes by these stone images near Gilgal. And there's something special about these stone images. Now, some versions, and I don't know what version of the Bible you have, I'm, I'm going through the NIV, but some of the versions that you have may actually say the idols near Gilgal. And I believe that because of this time period that passed from the time of Joshua to the time of Judges 3, about 100 years or a generation, that the people didn't even know what these idols or stone images were originally meant for. And that's extremely sad. Because they were not idols as we know them. They were stone images, but they were meant for a special purpose. And ultimately, we have to take a look at Joshua 4, 1 through 7, to see what the meaning of these stone images near Gilgal is all about. Joshua 4, 1 through 7. Let's take a look, because it explains clearly what these stone images were, and they were not idols to false gods. Joshua 4, 1 through 7 says that when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one of each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing. And carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone in his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. Here's the key. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel. How long? Forever. Not just Joshua's generation. Not just the next generation. But forever here's what I think happened. Time passes from the time of the crossing of the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua in all these incredible miracles. The next generation is doing whatever they want, serving whatever they want, living however they want, and they don't even understand what these stone images represent. The fact that some of your Bibles call them idols, I think that's the way that generation would have understood them. That's not what they really were, though. They weren't idols. They were stones of remembrance that every generation forever would see these stones and remember what God had done. The fact that they call them idols a generation later just tells me how quick people forget. How people forget God. How people quickly forget what God has done in their lives. And for that, it breaks my heart. Remember Judges 2.10 said another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And I believe that's why. That's why they don't remember the meaning of those stones. But Ehud remembered the significance of the landmark. He returned to finish his business. The landmark would have reminded Israel that this is Israel's land. This is God's promise. This is God's promised land, and this land does not belong to Moab or anybody else. This land is the promised land that belongs to Israel and belongs to God. That's what those stones represented. And those stones, those landmarks, reminded him that I need to go finish the job that God has for me. And how does this end? Well, finish the story and see. But we'll see that it ends victoriously. Picking up at verse 20. Ehud then approached him 
while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand. He went across his body and drew the sword out of his right thigh. Taking that sword and sticking it right into the king's gut. Says it plunged into the king's belly. The handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. You know, something like that makes me think that this is actually a true story. (laughs) Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the upper room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. Now one wonders, how long does somebody have to wait? I'll let you decide that. Knock on the door. Everything okay in there? Everything okay in there? Everything okay in there? How long before we actually go check and open the door to find out if everything really is okay in there? So you imagine that there's some time passing as they're waiting for the king to finish his business and they wait to this point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. Now, the fact that his bowels discharge, I'm guessing that it probably smells in there, like he's doing his business. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. All the meantime, what is Ehud doing? He's getting away. Because while they waited, it says, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. And that day, Moab was made subject to Israel. The land had peace. For 80 years. This is powerful. Ehud gets away. He blows a trumpet and the Israelites come. And look at some highlighted words up there. He says, follow me. So they followed and took possession of the fords. They allowed no one to cross over. They struck down about 10,000 Moabites. Notice the teamwork that's happening here. Ehud is one guy who's unique. He's got left-handedness that allows him to go into the inner barracks where the king is and draw his sword and free Israel. That was one guy's act with a special gift. But notice the work of the team, of the whole of Israel, to finish the task, to finish the job together. And I think that that's important because I believe very soon God is going to to place a leader here for you as your head pastor. But that's going to be one guy with some unique talents, some unique gifts. I don't know if he's going to be right-handed or left-handed, but I'm sure he's going to have the right gifts that are just what you need. But don't forget how this story ends with the they. It doesn't say he, Ehud, did everything, took the fords and the Jordan and and let no one cross over and struck down 10,000 Moabites by himself. It says they. And the church has always been us and they and a group of people. We can't put the task only on one guy. One guy can do some special things in lead along, but at some point he's going to have to pull along and say, come with me, follow, let's go, let's do this together, and the I will very quickly and soon become 
a they. And that's important to remember. I also want you to, in some application here, remember two things. Remember your landmarks when things get hard. And remember your left hand. Those two things. I want to share with you some of my landmarks. What, what are my landmarks in, in my life? Because landmarks are important. Ehud is about ready to give up. He's not going to finish the job. He's going to give up until he sees the landmarks. Once he sees the landmarks, he sees those, those stone images, he remembers God is faithful. God is powerful. God is strong. God is with me. God is with Israel. Not with the Moabites. He turns around and goes and finishes the job. There may be some places in your life that you feel like quitting. You feel like giving up. You feel like, I'm going in the opposite direction intentionally than where God wants me to go. But if we remember these landmarks, places in the past where God has been faithful, places in the past where God has worked, places in the past where God has healed, it allows us to persevere and continue to be strong to finish the task that God has for us. For me, I'm going to share just a few. I know for me, one of my landmarks, I'll be honest, my Bible. Now, this is one of many. It's one of my newer ones because my, my family, my wife just recently purchased this for me because my other NIV Bible was pretty much torn to shreds. I mean, pages were missing, whole sections and chapters gone. And it's not because I intentionally ripped them out. But when you use a book too much, what happens? It falls apart. And so you need to get a new one. Do I still have that old one? Absolutely, I do. In fact, I have a Bible that I keep in my classroom that I use with my students that was a Bible that my parents gave me for my very first day of high school. And on their very first day of high school, if I teach the freshman classes, and this year I'm teaching two freshman classes, I share with them the note that's in there. Because I still, now in my 40s, still have a landmark to go back to, several landmarks to go back to. If I consider that my Bible is a landmark, a reminder of God's faithfulness throughout my life, the Word of God actively speaking to me every day that I teach, every day that I preach, and every day that I open and read. I would also say that, well, for me, baseball has been a landmark. And, and why? It's because it wasn't easy. For me, baseball was not something that I was born naturally to do. It was a goal that I had to play college and, and to play in high school, and it was a difficult task to get on those teams. And I remember when I got and made it to the, to the Biola baseball team, and they were passing out jerseys, and there I was, a freshman. They passed out the jerseys to the seniors. They all got their same number, and then the juniors and the sophomores, and now the freshmen are left. There's only a handful of jerseys left. And they actually made us line up, and they handed us a jersey. Congratulations, you made the team. And if you didn't get a jersey, you didn't, made, you didn't make the team. There was myself and two other guys next to me and one more jersey in the box. And they pulled out number 30, and they handed it to me. And the justification was, you're a little bit bigger and stronger than these two other guys and we think that we can do something with you and make you into a pitcher for the next few years. That was it. It didn't fit. Number 30 did not fit to me. I, I, I felt like I was wrapped up in a, in a tight, tight blanket. It, it, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't until my sophomore year that I got something more comfortable. But I was grateful to have earned that. And when I did, I responded to my grandfather, who had been at every game that I can remember, and I said, Grandpa, we did it. Together, we made the baseball team. And so it wasn't easy. It was, it was a struggle. But, but the, that four-year experience playing ball, for me, it helped me keep focused. Because I believe young people need something that they enjoy to keep them focused. For me, baseball was there to help keep me focused because I knew my parents were not going to let me play ball if I didn't have the grades in high school. In fact, it wasn't until I started teaching at Maranatha that I learned that, that you can actually get D's on your report card and still play sports. I didn't know that. 
No, my parents told me that you have to have a 3.0 or you can't play sports. I thought that was the school rule until I started teaching there. Maybe it should be. <laughs> but, but, you, but you learn things and you're grateful. And now when I'm playing ball with my kids or I'm watching a ball game on TV, I'm reminded of God's faithfulness through my own struggles and yet through my own experience with ball. If you ever come and visit my classroom, you will also see that there is a table full of trophies because I invite my students when they win speech and debate tournaments to place their trophies on the table and keep them there as a memory because I know what I've done with all my old baseball trophies. They're in the garage in a box somewhere and I'm not even going to even look at them. Maybe once in a great while I'll pull something out and show to my kids and tell them a story. But, but other than that, they end up in a box, you're an adult, in a box, in a garage, and you don't even remember them. So I invite them to leave them on the table because every time they come back to Maranatha, they're going to remember that experience. And for me, the trophies are, are, are not just some meaningless uh, piece of gold-plated brass or whatever it is, plastic, painted. But to me, it's more than that. It's an experience of these young people having gone out and competed in speech and debate and then brought something back to show. And I put those on my desk to remind me that when I have a difficult day at work, when I'm tired on a Friday afternoon, when I'm emailing going back and forth with a parent and it's not going well because they're concerned about why their kid got a B plus, I, lo I, look, at, I look at those trophies and I'm reminded of the foundation that God has laid. When my grandfather passed away, he said, have you ever considered how many young people's lives you've touched for God just in your classroom alone? I'd never really thought of it before. But when I think about teaching at Maranatha for 20 years, there's been a lot of kids coming in and out of that classroom and families and parents and interactions with people and other teachers and families and friends and I look back at that, and then I go back to even when I was a student there and all the years and experiences and, and friendships and families. There's been a lot of people. And maybe that's what we need to do. We, we need to have landmarks that remind us of the impacts that we make in people's lives because so soon we forget. If I had a, an empty table, it would be very easy for me to just focus on what's at task today be discouraged, and wallow in my discouragement. But when I look up and I turn on the lights in the room and there's a shine coming off that table, I remember the landmark of those experiences and the memories of how those kids improve in communication skills come back and encourage me. This here is another landmark for me, my wedding ring. Because I think about how long I waited for my wife to come into my life. And I'm just grateful. My three kids are also landmarks for me. Because I think about how faithful God is to provide what you need when you need it. And I'm just grateful. These are landmarks for me. And I'm sure if you think about it, you have landmarks as well that will encourage you to continue to persevere. Obviously, there's got to be some landmarks here or we still wouldn't be gathered together at Joy Christian Center. You've got to have some landmarks because you're continuing to persevere in the ministry. You haven't left it behind, have you? You continue to persevere. And you look at those landmarks from the past of God's faithfulness back here and you trust that he will be faithful down the road. But it's not just the landmarks. It's also time to remember our left hands. Now, what is our left hand? Well, many of you might not be left-handed, or maybe you are. But it really doesn't matter what you're left-handed or not. What matters is what are the unique gifts that God has given you to edify the body of Christ. You see, if the body of Christ really is a they and not an I, then all of you have a unique gift to offer to the ministry and the edification of the body of Christ. And when I say body of Christ, I don't just mean one particular church like Joy Christian Center, but I mean the body of Christ at large. How do we serve other Christians? And it sounds like just this last weekend by going to Mexico, you experienced that. 
You're, you're giving gifts and opportunities and, and, and ways that God has made you to go down and serve others. You see, I, I know for me, at my age, I kind of know what my gifts are and what my gifts are not. If you ask me to, to build a house for somebody, that would not be my gift. Somebody would have to be right behind me fixing everything. But if you ask me to share from the Word of God, preaching and teaching would be one of my gifts. Had I known today that uh, Lucas wasn't going to be here, I'd have been happy to bring my guitar and, and lead some worship as well because God's given me a gift with music and worship leading as well. I think he's also given me some gifts for encouraging and, and teaching the kids, the young people, uh, in some sports and in, in, in high school teaching them and motivating them to compete in, in speech and debate tournaments. But, but these, are, these are my left-handed gifts. I would simply ask you, what are your left-handed gifts? And I want to leave today encouraging you not to make excuses when God has called you. When God has called you to, to, to finish a task. Some of the common excuses people have, and I've heard this at school, people will say, well, I'm, I'm too young. I can't accomplish this. I'm too young. But even my young children have gifts and opportunities to share Christ and their experience with other people. If not for any other reason but to teach us adults patience, our young kids, they definitely have gifts and talents. And the Bible even tells them, 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for believers in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So I tell my young people and my high school students, don't let people look down on you just because you're young. Use your youth as an opportunity to share Christ. Because there are certain things that young people can do. Maybe older people can't do. But there certainly are some things that older people can do that maybe young people can't do. So don't let age, if you feel like I'm too old, don't let that become an excuse. Because Proverbs 16.31 says that the gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. Or as I tell my young people, no hair is a crown of splendor. But when I think of, of, of even elderly people and, and what they have to offer, prime example is my grandmother. When she was in her 80s, she was really losing her strength. But there were three things that she continued to do. And sadly, I watched these three things somewhat fade away as her life faded away slowly on a couch. But the first thing that she did was she encouraged people in our congregation with, with car, a card writing ministry. That's what she did. So we'd get a card in the mail for no reason, just because Grandma was thinking about us and encouraging us. And she'd have a list of people. She'd go, go to the dollar store and buy all kinds of cards. You spend $100 of cards at the dollar store, you get a lot of cards to send people. When she passed away, inside her garage were boxes and boxes of cards that were never sent. But I believe that she intended to send every one of those because she had a card writing ministry. When her hand got too weak to write, she continued the phone ministry. And that was something that I looked forward to all the time. I, I would go out in the evenings after a difficult day of work or a long day in traffic, and I'd call my grandma. And I'd walk the dog, and sometimes I'd walk the dog a little longer just so I could talk to Grandma a little longer and get a little more encouragement. But sadly, there came a day when her voice faded, and she was no longer even strong enough to talk on the phone. But she told me, she says, you know what? God has been good and faithful and allowed her to do certain things. She had mentioned to me in person that while she's no longer able to write cards or she's not even comfortable or have the energy to talk to people on the phone, she says, I feel like God has kept me here 
just to lay on this couch and pray. She was a prayer warrior. And when all of her strength was gone, she continued to pray for people. I honestly believe that we have no excuses. We have no excuses for not continuing to serve Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and to edify and build up the body of Christ. Now you, like Inigo Montoya, may have a secret. I know for me, I am not left-handed. But that doesn't mean that I can't serve God with my unique gifts, talents, and opportunities. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to share one of my favorite stories as a child from the Bible in Judges 3. We see from this story, Lord, that you do use people with unique gifts and talents for unique opportunities in ministry. And we might come along and say that, well, we're not very unique. We're just average and we're just regular people doing regular things. But Lord, you have created each one of us unique. We are created in your image. We are created with particular tasks and opportunities to share Christ and to edify the body of Christ with others. So Lord, help us to remember these two things. Help us to remember the landmarks of our lives. Those places in the past where you did show up, where you did answer prayer, where you did come to the rescue. Sometimes you show up at the last minute, but you're still there, Lord. Help us remember those times so we can continue to persevere and look forward to your working in our lives and in our church in the future. Help us, Lord, to remember our left hand, our unique gifts and talents that you've given us to be able to reach the body of Christ, to encourage and edify and lift up. Lord, again, I pray for this congregation. I'm excited to hear who you have in store for them as their leader. May they remember, though, that in this story of Ehud, it was not just one guy that came and led and did the task. While Ehud did a lot of the task, it was Israel that came alongside, and then they went forward, and then they conquered 10,000, and then they. And I pray, Lord, that this congregation would also remember that every individual member of the church is responsible to one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up, and to use their gifts and talents for your kingdom. In your name I pray. Amen.